I pray that everybody would just feel loved and feel wanted uh, because, Lord, that's, that's your church, and we thank you for everything you're doing. Open our hearts now to receive what you'd have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I, I, am, I am a closet pyromaniac. I don't light fires in the closet, but uh, I probably have. But anyway, uh, the point is, when I was younger, uh, in Michigan, most people don't have a fake Christmas tree, right? You get a real one. And, and most people don't discard their Christmas trees properly. One thing I love about California is we're really big on how we get rid of stuff. You know, garbage, recyclables, electronics, you know. We're miles ahead of Michigan. Michigan, you know, that stuff piles up for generations, it seems like. And that's why all the best yard sales are back in the Midwest. But anyway, you know, so, so we'd have our Christmas trees until like May or June. So one time I get a call from my friend. And remember, by May or June, what's happened to the tree? It's dead. It's dry. So I get a call from my friend. He's like, hey, uh, I'm going to go light up my Christmas tree. You want to come with me? Yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. I was about 10 or 11, you know, and, and, and I, as I'm leaving, I thought, wait a minute, I'll just bring my tree too. Hey, double your pleasure. So I'm dragging my Christmas tree. I'm sure all the neighbors are wondering, what's he going to do with that Christmas tree? We, we walk out to Palmer's Field, which was behind my house where I lived in Detroit, and, and uh, we set up, we get a rope, and we tie the two Christmas trees together. And, uh, and I said, man, I said, how are we going to light this thing? All we had was a book of matches. He goes, ha-ha, and he's got lighter fluid. So he's just spraying this thing, and he's going, ah! You know, he's getting all into it, you know? And, and, but he had this theory that you had to let the lighter fluid soak. I found out later, you do not have to let the lighter fluid soak. In fact, if you do, what begins to happen in the hot sun? It evaporates, Right? And so we're sitting there for about a good five minutes, and it's blazing hot in June this time in Michigan. And finally, he's like, all right, let's do it. So we stand up, and he lights the match. I thought he was going to throw the match in. I never seen anybody do this. He lights the book of matches. And he takes it, and he throws it like a Frisbee into the thing. And we both are standing there, and this is the closest I've ever been to war. This thing blew up. I mean, all the fumes, it just blew up, and the shock of it threw both of us back on our backs, and we're lying on the ground as these two Christmas trees just go up in this blaze. And of course, you know, he's kind of, he's breathing heavy, you know, and, and, and we're kind of freaked out for a moment. We look at each other, big old smile on our face. We get up, and what do boys do when they're surrounded by a big fire? We're dancing around it, you know, fire, fire, you know, and we're you know, like that scene from Castaway, you know, I have made fire, you know, we are just, we are just going nuts with this thing, you know, until we began to notice a little bit of the fire spilled over to the grass. Thankfully, grass in Michigan is more wet than grass in California. It doesn't light up, you know, like an apocalyptic blaze like it does here. And so we were able to, you know, use natural means, you know, uh, to, to get it out. But I remember thinking to myself, man, that fire would have burnt the whole place down. I mean, it would put the whole area down if we had not put out that fire. 
It was not a dying fire. It was what you would call a consuming fire. And this morning, my scripture for this morning comes out of the book of Hebrews. In the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 28, the writer says, Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Earthly kingdoms can be shaken and will be shaken. All of them, by the end, will be shaken. So if our little kingdom gets shaken, or if other kingdoms get shaken, don't worry. They're shakable. The afterlife, the world after this world, two seconds after we die, the world we wake up to, that's a kingdom that can't be shaken. The kingdom of Christ and God. Says, praise God. So the writer says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Verse 29, and I love this, one of my favorite verses. For our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. Now, fire is probably one of the most frequent biblical images we get of God. And I'm going to tell you what it means. Fire in the Bible means this, is equal to God's presence among his people. So wherever you see fire in the Bible, God is everywhere, but he is uniquely manifesting there for a purpose and a reason. It's, it's, it, again, you can see it a lot of times, definitely experience it. It's there. And uh, it began, really the first time you see a significant use of this, is in Exodus chapter 3. Moses, who's fled, right? He, was on the, he fled from Egypt because he murdered somebody, right? So he's a fleeing murderer. He hooks up with this guy in the Sinai Peninsula, and he starts watching his sheep, and he gets one of his daughters as wife, and... He starts tending his sheep, and what happens? A bush starts burning. But Moses has seen bushes burn before. He said, man, it's so dry out here. That thing should be ashes by now. But it isn't. So he walks over to this burning bush, and then the bush begins to speak to him and says, take off your sandals for the ground where you are standing is holy. And all of a sudden, the presence of God fills that little area that Moses is at. And he takes his sandals off and God says, your people who've been in slavery in Egypt, I want you to go and be my agent to free them. And Moses says, you have got to be kidding me. You have got, I mean, I, you know, burning bush, I must have smoked something because you have got to be kidding. Deliver the people of Israel from Egypt which was one of the top military powers in the world at that time. And God only has to say one sentence, and it changes Moses' mind. You know what God said? I will be with you. That's all God needs to say. All of a sudden, Moses is confident to take on the world because God is with him. And he knew it was God because he saw the fiery glory of God in the bush. And the bush did not burn. He saw it once again. Ten chapters later in Exodus 13, Moses has freed the people. And now they're out in the middle of the desert and they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They are directionless and purposeless in life. And all of a sudden, a strange manifestation occurs. At night, they begin to see this pillar of fire. 
that is the glorious presence of God in their camp. And they're going, wow, that's amazing. And Moses goes, that's the presence of God. And it begins to move. And wherever that pillar of fire moves in the desert, the people are to pack up and move with it. So God's guiding them through the desert, and they know that God is with them by seeing that pillar of fire. In Leviticus 9, 24, Moses builds a church. And the very first service at that church, it's a tent church, the very first service, he has an animal offering he's going to give. Before he can light the fire and burn up this offering to the Lord, you know that pillar of fire that was guiding them? It licks over and burns the first offering, showing Moses that God was indeed with him and honoring his worship. The Lord was saying, I will respond, and when I respond, I will respond with power. In Second Chronicles 7, Solomon is now taken the tent church, and he's built a mega church called the temple. And Solomon has his first offering. They're ready to go. They're ready to dedicate it. And all of a sudden, this fire comes down from heaven and burns up the whole burnt offering. There were millions of people there. They saw it. They saw it happen. And you know what they did? You know what the response was? They got on their knees. They bowed their head. And they worshiped God. Why? Because they knew a unique manifestation of the presence of God was among them. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God says, Is not my word like fire? Like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? The Lord's saying, my word is powerful in you. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah is the last hope of the people of Israel. The last prophet who's trying to get them to come back to God. The Babylonian armies are at the gates. They're about ready to conquer everything. And Jeremiah is sick of it. He says, God, I don't want to tell these people another word because they won't listen anyway. And this is what Jeremiah says. Verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a fire in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. The Spirit of God is in us. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 24, the prophet Elijah is the one last prophet remaining in Israel. At least he thinks he is. And he's this one prophet of God, and there's 450 pagan prophets. And Elijah says, we have a problem here. We were founded upon worshiping God, but now you guys say we ought to worship these gods. I don't think they're gods at all. So let's have a little contest. You and your 450 prophets, you build an altar and put a sacrifice on there. I'll build an altar and put a sacrifice here. And I love what he says. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people go, that's a good idea. That's a great way to settle it. Whichever God miraculously burns up the offering by fire, that will be the God. And so the prophets, they get all their stuff, and they're chanting, and they're doing all, and Elijah knows that nothing's going to happen. In fact, he begins to mock them. He says, why don't you shout louder? Maybe your God slipped in this morning and can't hear you. So maybe you should be a little louder. Maybe you should cut yourselves. Maybe your God doesn't have enough compassion on you. He's, he's taunting them, and nothing happens. And finally, he says, be quiet. 
That's enough. He takes a few stones, gathers the wood, digs a little trench, puts his offering. He stands back, begins to lift his hands in worship. And then the fire of God burns up the offering of Elijah. The God who answered by fire. He was God. And what does he do? Kill the prophets. You know? <laughs> it's kind of a dramatic thing. But all of the people began to say, wow. The, our God, the true God, answered by fire. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Hebrews 12, 29, we just read, our God is a consuming fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, it's talking about Armageddon, the final battle where, where all of the enemies and the armies of the world have gathered together to destroy Jerusalem. And it says, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. God saying, I will restore all things. What is he saying? He's saying, I will be with you. I will go ahead of you. I will not forget you. I'm in you. I will restore all things. My word is in you. My word is power. And it all is centered around this experience of the fire of God. And so, to sum it up, in reference to the Holy Spirit, fire represents God's presence, God's protection, God's purifying of His people, God's promises, and God's power. But my question this morning is, what do we do? You know, we've all heard that, that saying, you know, man, that guy's on fire for God. Man, that guy's really on fire for his faith. It could be any faith. You know, when we think of somebody who's on fire, we think of somebody who's passionate, who's, who's really uh, excited, and they want to see the, what hopefully is the blessings of the faith go forth. That's when we're on fire for Christ. We're passionate about our Christian faith and our walk with the Lord. So what do you do if you're not really on fire? In fact, it's the number one thing I hear from people sometimes. You know what, Tom? I used to be close to God. I used to be on fire. But man, something's changed. I worry more. I doubt more. I'm not really sure it is the way that those preachers always said it was. I'm not really sure God can be trusted. I'm not really sure, you know, sometimes I feel like God's calling me to do something, but then I doubt it, and I just say no because I don't really want to do it anyway. You know, I get all these things. How, you know, and then, of course, I t talk to people who aren't Christian, or who have no faith. And they're like, I'd like to become a Christian, but I don't want to become an on-fire one. I just want to be a normal one. You know? And, uh, and uh, you know, I don't want to become one of those. You know? And there's almost like, you know, there's a skepticism about being passionate about what we believe and what we know. And so, my first point is very simple. In life, whatever you do, I don't know who coined this phrase, but it really works. Go big or go home. Anything you do half-heartedly, you'll get a half-hearted result. You know, if you do Christianity half-heartedly, let me tell you what will happen in 10 years. It will be boring. 
it will become obligatory. It'll be a routine in your life. And all of a sudden, going to church is just something you do. You don't even know what you're supposed to do in there anymore or why you do it. That's what happens when it's just kind of half-hearted. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, you know, I'm a normal Christian. Now, I'm sure if I got cancer, I'd probably get really on fire for the Lord because I don't want to die. The fact of the matter is, after working with people for over 20 years, if you're not on fire and you get cancer, you probably will just get mad. You'll probably just get really bitter against God. You know, oh, I tried to be just this good person, and now I got cancer. You know, rarely ever. Now, sometimes I see it. People call it their wake-up call. You know, I, I was, I was but, but I think inside, those people always knew they needed to be more on fire than they were, and they just were resisting it. Others, it's just, just the sense of, I'm not so sure I really want to get that deep into the doo-doo. And let me tell you this right now. Go big or go home. Anything in life, go big or go home. You know, when I look at the things that I did half-hearted, it never worked. You know, I tried to be a vegan once. Never that's just not for me. And even when I tried, I did it for a girl, you know? So, I mean, it was just, my reasons weren't even right, you know? And I just, it just, you know, it, it just was, it just was never going to happen, you know? I'm like Peter, kill, eat, you know? So the point is, point one, go big or go home. Do, do this and do it both feet in. The second thing is this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. You may say, well, how do you put it out? My second point is this. Saying no to the things God leads us to do is the fire killer. Now, a lot of people tell you sin is the fire killer. Well, if that were the case, none of us could ever really be on fire for God, right? Because to our dying breath, all of us will have sin in some way or another. It's part of what we carry. It's part of what we gotta, it's part of what we war against and fight against, you know? So if that were the case, I mean, the Bible would be pointless even mentioning we could be on fire. Not, not saying that harboring, uh, you know, some addiction or harboring some, you know, is not gonna put a lot of that fire out. But I think there's something more, something more significant that puts the fire out beyond just the sin we struggle with every day. And I'll tell you what it is. I think it's when God leads us to do something and we say no. When God says, you know what? I'd like you to go and make peace with that person. No! You know what? I'd like you to go say sorry to your wife. No! You know, I'd like you, don't, don't go with your friend. Don't do that. Why don't you go spend time with your son this afternoon? No! You know, why don't you, you know, you, you, you've been struggling with your health. Why don't you go hit the gym tonight and you know, give the TV a rest? No! You know, it's when we begin to say no to the things that God is leading us into. That's when the real fire comes in. I mean, yeah, we, we may all struggle with eating more Oreos than we should have. Or, you know, or, or just that l struggling with the natural cravings and stuff. It's that deliberate spiritual no that really begins to impact our being on fire for God. And of course, Deuteronomy chapter 1 gives a great example of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses has freed the Israelites. They're, about, they're at Kadesh Barnea, which is the gates to the promised land, right? This is Ellis Island for the promised land. 
And he sends out 12 spies. And those spies, they go and they look. And they come back and they say, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's only one problem. The people are tall. And they're even taller. They got giants in the land. And the walls, walls are huge. We're never going to do anything with our sticks and rocks and pitiful little daggers. And so, and I'll, I'll read it for you. Moses uh, Moses says, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the direction God had given us. You grumbled and said, God hates us. He just brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of these Amorites, these Canaanites, to destroy us. Where can we go? We've lost heart. The people are stronger the people are taller, the cities are large, the walls are huge, and the Anakites, the ancestors of Goliath, are there. Now, I want to pause here to comment and say one thing. This is not a false report. Everything, and I mean everything, the spies said was true. It was a good land flowing with milk and honey, and there were a lot of walled cities. Though God had promised the land to the Jews... They would still have to fight for every inch of it. The Jews could have the promised land, but if they were unwilling to fight for it, then the land would never belong to them. They, what they really wanted was for God to kind of just drop the keys out of the sky and say, all right, cleared everybody out, just go in and, you know, good to go now. Now, how many of you are like, you know what, (laughs) it would be great if God did that once in my life, you know, I mean, this is the part of theology that gets me most, because I'm like, God, I I work 60 hours a week for you, I'm I'm loving my wife, I'm taking care of my kids, couldn't you just throw me a bone? I mean, $50,000 ought to do it, you know, I I don't even care who writes a check, that'd just be fine, I'd just take that, just drop that out of heaven and all my worries will go away, you know? We can have that same thing. But fighting for the land means that you're depending and trusting on God every step of the way. And God knew what the outcome would be. They would be on fire for God. But they decided not to. And here's, you know, here's what Moses says. He said, in spite of this, you didn't trust God who goes ahead of us on our journeys. And we saw him in the fire of cloud, fiery cloud at night and the pillar of fog by day. He says, look, it's bad enough you didn't go. But you can't say God wasn't with us. You saw him at night. That pillar that burned that was trying to get us to go into the promised land and we were going the other way. What happened was They were going the other way so strong, they walked away from the pillar of fire. The pillar of fire was going into the promised land. Yes, they'd have to fight for it, but that's where God was going. God was going to be with them. And God's trying to say, look, you got out of Egypt, the most powerful army in the world. Now I'm taking you to a far lesser foe, and you're afraid? I'm with you. But what the Israelites did was they walked away from the fire. They went the other way 
so that they could be safe in the desert and not have to fight. And they had a horrible life in the desert. They settled for less than what they ever could have been. And God let that whole generation die out. Thankfully, their kids said, wait a minute. We saw the fire, and we still got Joshua and Caleb with us. We're willing to fight. We'll go do it. And what did that generation see? They saw walls fall down. They saw armies scatter. They saw their enemies surrender because they followed the fire. So my point, second point is very clear. Sometimes saying no to those little promptings that God puts in our heart. And a lot of times they're going to be in areas we don't want to do. Go say you're sorry. Go, go, go help this person out financially a little bit. It could be in those areas where we're like, hey. God's going, come on. I'm giving you a chance to light that fire and let it burn. Amen? Ramesh Richard was a middle-class American citizen. Didn't have a lot of money. Had, had probably what most of us, in some degree, have access to. Wasn't a millionaire. Probably wasn't really even a thousandaire. Just a guy. But he had a dream to bring 23 young men over from 23 different countries around the world that did not have access to pastoral training because they wanted to be pastors, but they just didn't have access to it. So he found 23 young men under 35, men from Zambia, Egypt, Mongolia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and he brought them to Texas to a compound he had rented for three weeks of training. And then he's calling the seminaries, Dallas Seminary, Wheaton College, Fuller Seminary. Can you send some professors to come here for a day or two? Well, we can send them, but you have to pay for them. Okay, I'll pay for them then. So now he's paying for the people to come over. He's paying for the professors, and he's renting a compound. He added it up, and he realized it was going to cost $6,000 per person. It was not all men. It was some women, too. So $6,000 to have them come and do this. So he said, I got to get some people to help me. And he did. He got 17 people to sponsor him. What do you think happened to the other six? I think he called them up and said, oh, I didn't have the money, so you have to, we can't come. Sorry I invited you. That would be, that would be awful, wouldn't it? He sold his cars, mortgaged his house, scraped money from anywhere he could. His total assets went down to a few hundred bucks. And he raised $36,000 to get those men there. At the end of the three weeks, the city of Dallas, Fort Worth, sent a TV crew to interview the man. And they said, why did you do this? Why did you, so few people would ever do this. Why did you do this? The man said simply this. Being a part of training these young men, when I do it, I can feel God's pleasure. And I do it all again. That's a man on fire. Now, when I talk about being on fire for God, some of you may think being emotionally excited. You know, it's easy to, yeah, God, 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 God. I've seen a lot of those people yelling for God one day, can't stand the Lord the next. It's not about emotional or excitement. My, one of my sons, 
uh, he came up to me, and he's like, I, I, we were talking about, I said, Jonathan, what do you want to do with your future? He's like, you know, I'm just so afraid. I want to do what God wants for my life, and I'm so afraid I'm going to miss out on it. And I said, well, why are you afraid of that? He said, well, because, Dad, I'm not like you. I said, like me? What do you mean? He's like, well, Dad, we all hear you. You shut the door of your bedroom, and you're in there shouting and screaming at the devil, and you're calling down revival for the country, and you're doing all this and that. He said, I'm just not like that. I'm not loud. I'm quiet. I'm kind of scratching my head going so they hear that, huh? you know. And, and I finally had to look at him. I said, you know what, Jonathan? Being on fire for the Lord doesn't mean you got to be like me. In fact, I don't even know why I shout. It's not like God's going to hear me any better if I shout or whether I whisper. He's like, then why do you? I said, well, that's just me. That's my personality. It has to come out of me like that. I said, but you know what? If you're quiet and shy, but your heart is that you want to do what God wants for your life, then son, you are on fire for God because that's the definition right there. I want what God wants for my life. That's being on fire. Amen? And point number three, the best you, the best you, the best you is the you that's on fire for God. You have reached your fullest potential when you are on fire for God. When we're not on fire for God, we're settling for less. Choosing to settle for less. And many of you I know, you've had moments in your life you've been really on fire for God. And I think you know exactly what I mean. You, you can feel it. Yeah, man, when I was on fire for God, I was just really swimming in the river of God. It was amazing. It was awesome. Now, I, I don't know. I got off at the bank somewhere, and I'm not sure what, where I'm going, what I'm doing. I know I'm going to heaven, but between now and then, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The best you is the you that is on fire for God. It is an unstoppable you. Like Moses. Moses wasn't always perfect. You know when Moses was at his best? When he was burning with the fire of God. Elijah? Elijah was a pathetic prophet. You know when he was at his best? When he was calling down fire for God. The people of Israel. Poor example. Poorest example in history. Of a people for God. But you know when they shined? When they were on fire for God. Jesus facing the cross on fire for Peter. Peter was a wimp. He was a liar, a betrayer. He was so many things. You know when Peter was at his best? The day of Pentecost. When those tongues of fire landed on him and he walks out of the building and he begins telling people, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus cares about your life. He's here right now. God has a plan for you. Before that, he was too scared. He stayed in that little room hoping he didn't get hurt. Now, all of a sudden, he's thrust into the plan of God for his life because he's on fire. The best you is the you that's on fire for God. That's the best you. Now, those of you who grew up in California, you'll probably remember this. Because it happened some time ago. In Yosemite National Park, they used to have fire signals, right? The rangers. 
and they were up on top of the high points of the park. One of those high points is called Glacier Point. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Glacier Point. And right below Glacier Point is an area called Camp Curry. Camp Curry. It got renamed? Lawsuit. I, I, no, I didn't live here. Um, but I know a lot about lawsuits. Not personally, but anyway. Uh, so, so what would happen is these people would go, and there'd be the signal fire, and the way they put the fire out was they would slough it off the, the cliff. And so the rangers, when they were ready to do this, they would yell down at the microphone, Are you ready? And the people would say, Let the fire fall! And the rangers would say again, Are you ready? And they'd say, Yes, let the fire fall! They'd say again, Are you ready? Yes, for goodness sake, let the fire fall! And the rangers would push the embers down and all of the side of that big monolith would light up with fire. And one report was so interesting. And it read like this. I'm not sure if the people there were spiritual or religious or not. But as those fiery embers began to fall, spontaneously you'd see people begin to lift their hands up toward it and allow those embers to fall on them. I think God says the same thing to us. Are you ready? And hopefully our response will be, let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. This morning, I'd like to do something different. I have here some candles. I found that if you hear something, you remember it a little. If you hear something and you see it, you remember a little more. But if you hear something and do it, it lasts a few days. I like this to last a few days. What we've done is lit a few candles here. In a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back forward. And what I'm going to ask us to do is for everybody to come up and light their own candle. And as we light these, we're going to sing a song, a few songs. Let the fire fall. There we go. <laughs> so what I'd like us to do is we'll come forward as the music's playing. And I'll have some people here with matches. And we have some bowls with water. None of them would. And just... Take your match, take a candle, light it, and I was going to have them all stay up here, but I'd rather you take them back to your seat and just hold it as we sing. And this week after church, for the next few days, I want you to light this candle, and I want you to say, I am my best me. When I am on fire for God. Let it be a reminder for a few days. This candle will burn out. Probably in a week. So the reminder won't last forever. But hopefully this message will. You'll become like Moses at the burning bush. Elijah in front of the prophets. Jesus at the cross. Peter at the Pentecost. Armageddon. We identify with the presence of God.
becoming the best you when you're on fire for God.